Today's passage is 1 Timothy 6, 3-16. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people, who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, pleasant good morning to all of you. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 27. I thought you have curved there. Acts 27 will be in Ephesians 4 in just a minute. This morning we'll be looking at Ephesians 4, verses 14 through 17, talking about spiritual immaturity and its dangers. Spiritual immaturity and its dangers. Paul used words in Ephesians 4.14 that would make his readers shudder. They knew well that traveling via ship was dangerous, and often it was disastrous. In a few years, Paul will barely survive a, a voyage Himself, You might remember toward the end of Acts, he, as a prisoner, is being transported to Rome, and he's going there by ship. The voyage in the story becomes dangerous. And when they are at the port Fair Havens, he recommended that they stay there for the winter, but the majority voted to press on. So I'd like you to follow with me as I read a few verses out of Acts 27, and and we'll kind of jump around a little bit because I just want to get um, the the actual what happened to the ship itself because that is what is going to be a good illustration for us when we get into Ephesians 4, verse 14. So Acts 27, verse 14 But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquilo, which just means a northeaster. It was a very violent wind. 
And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor. And so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, They began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now, let your eyes slide down to verse 27. But when the fourteenth night had come, and we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. Now go down to verse 39. And when day came, they could not recognize the land. But they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, and they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, And the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. They were blessed of the Lord that what should have happened to them, what normally would have happened to them, didn't. They lost the ship. It was beat to pieces by the storm. There was quite a bit of loss, but not of life. Normally, they would have all died. That is a vivid picture of what can happen when believers fail to use their spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are given so that individuals and their church grow toward maturity. When growth doesn't continue, spiritual shipwreck will eventually come. Without continued growth, we will be no match for powerful winds and waves. What we're going to focus on today is this. Spiritual immaturity leaves us vulnerable to spiritual disaster. Immaturity leaves us vulnerable to spiritual disaster. And so we must conduct ourselves, conduct yourselves truthfully that we may grow to be like Christ. And we're going to talk about what all that means as we work our way through the passage this morning. 
we see, and you can turn over to Ephesians 4 now, we will spend the rest of our time. We see in verses 14 through 16 of Ephesians 4 why growth and harmony and maturity are so important. Because without them, we, we lack the stability that we need. And we will not have sustained growth if we don't have them. Jesus has provided for us to experience both of those. He's provided for us to experience spiritual stability and also ongoing spiritual growth. Well, how has He provided for that? Well, let's talk about where we're at here in Ephesians 4 to help get us on the road to answering that. In this section, verses 7 through 16, what Paul is doing is giving them an exhortation to grow together toward unity of the faith. And what he did first, we have already looked at. He Christ gives spiritual gifts to each believer in the church. He, that's how He provides. He gives spiritual gifts to everyone in the church. And then we looked at the next section, verses 11 through 13. Some of those gifts equip believers to serve. It equips the believers to serve. Why? And to what end? For growth, harmony, and maturity. That's why some of the gifts were given. We talked about the ones that are existing today, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, are given to that end to equip believers. And now we enter the final section of this part, verses 14 through 16. As believers serve one another... And we're going to look at what is what should the result be? What can we expect? As we serve one another, the result is stability, love, and more growth. And that whole idea of growth, it's kind of circular. As we grow, we grow more. It, it helps us grow more. And as that happens, it will help us grow even more. So Jesus gives His church spiritual gifts so that she will be built up. He provides for her to grow. Paul now shows us what Jesus intends will result from the body of Christ growing as she uses her gifts. What is going to result from that? Well, first, it's this. When the body of Christ grows, that will prevent spiritual instability. So he's helping us to see, uh, to better appreciate our need. And he's going to do that both negatively first and then positively. So when the body of Christ grows, that will prevent spiritual instability. So back in Ephesians 4 now, I want to start reading in verse 11 to get us in our context. Talking about spiritual gifts. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Or as we said last time, till we measure up to the full stature of Christ. <clears throat> and now, our text. As a result, we are no longer to be children. We'll stop there. Paul here, as I said last time, he's contrasting children with the adult of the prior verse, verse 13, that mature man, as he called him there. 
So there's this contrast going on because he wants to to show us the peril we can be in if we don't ever attain to, we don't work toward and make progress toward being that mature man. Again, remember that mature man is not uh, you and I individually, but it's us corporately as the church. This word children can refer to either infants or the younger children before preteens. But it also was used to describe immaturity, lack of experience, lack of understanding, which that's normal for children, right? Your toddler doesn't understand a lot of things that they eventually one day will understand. And so we say that they are immature. It's not wrong for a toddler to be immature. It's wrong for someone like adults like you or me, those of us that are adults, to be immature. What this word does, the way Paul's using it, is it highlights the gullibility of believers who have not matured spiritually. And a lot of people don't take this seriously enough. They don't realize that if you don't grow in maturity, if you don't grow in your understanding of the Word of God and being able to apply it to your life, that you're you're going to be gullible, just as a child is gullible. That's why we protect our children, right? Because they're gullible. Believers are not to remain as spiritual infants. Why? Or why not? Again, verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Here's why. Because we would be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Believers remain immature. They remain spiritual children. They will be like that ship in Acts 27. And think about the disaster that came from that. And potentially, it could have been the loss of all of their lives. That is the danger. Paul says, you know, here, they're tossed here and there. And remember as we as I read that, there were phrases that talked about them being driven along by the wind and then they're being tossed and everything. And then when they when they hit that reef and were were lodged there and they couldn't break free, the, the winds and waves just kept kept beating them, tossing them about until it just broke the ship all up. That imagery should sober us. People of that day knew that to be tossed around by surging waves on the sea spelled disaster for sailors. And as I mentioned, many of them lost their lives from violent storms like that. Such haunting pictures underscore the tragedy of believers who fail to grow to maturity. How many of them who, at least, and I'm using the term broadly there, believers, those who profess to be believers, they get sucked into cults and false religion. It's not that long ago we've heard of prominent people, pastors even, who reject the faith. Children are easily manipulated, confused, deceived. Spiritual infants are no different. They are gullible to the persuasiveness, the personality, the winsomeness, or the arrogance of clever people. Spiritual infants can't measure truth claims. 
against biblical truth. In fact, they can be deceived into thinking that error actually is biblical truth. That's exactly what false teachers try to do. They try to make you think that their error is found in the words of Scripture. And they will seek to confuse and deceive so that you believe that. So he talks here about being tossed here and there. Then he adds another term, carried about. There's that idea of the wind carrying a ship along, driving it along. The word here can mean to carry around or to make dizzy. It's describing a state of confusion that spiritual infants can, they can fall prey to when they allow, when false teachers are allowed to talk. And we're to take a very strong stand against false teachers. We have to shut that down right away and not let it continue because they can mislead others. So what then do the waves and the winds represent? What is it that tosses around, if you will, immature believers? Well, first, there is doctrine. And so some people jump on this, aha, see, you know, doctrine divides. Okay, we don't want doctrine. Let's get rid of doctrine. Well, we have to look at what he's talking about here. Because think back to those spiritual gifts in verse 11. Pastors and teachers in particular, they teach doctrine. That's what their job is to teach the Word of God, to teach sound doctrine. Their sound doctrine grows the church toward maturity, and that produces stability. But you see, when that doesn't happen, then their church will be left vulnerable to false doctrine. Paul calls it every wind of doctrine. Because that influence those temptations can come from every different direction. Think here, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the four winds or from the four corners of the earth that the wind comes from those. And, and so he's saying from every different direction, expect these assaults to come. Don't think that they can only come from one direction. They seek to undermine, false teachers seek to undermine the sound doctrine of a church's pastors and teachers. How do they do that? Well, as he keeps adding terms here, they use trickery. That literally means dice playing. And the idea there is most likely of having loaded dice. And I mean, they even did that back then, you know, where they would cheat. And that's the idea. It's cheating. And, and so, <clears throat> they use cunning or trickery to persuade spiritual children to embrace their false doctrine. Okay? How do they accomplish that trickery? Well, he adds another term, craftiness. Now, it just means craftiness, being crafty. Okay? And so we don't talk about it a lot, but they do that. They accomplish their craftiness by deceitful scheming. And let's break that down and talk about it, those words, just a minute to kind of fill out the idea so that we... When we read Ephesians 4.14, our mind goes to Acts 27 and we think about that shipwreck. We think what can happen. Because these, these false teachers are bringing their doctrine and their trickery and their cunning and their craftiness and all of this 
their deceitful schemes against us from every different direction. If this direction doesn't work, they come from another direction. If that doesn't work, they come from another. And they, they will do everything. And so he, we need to, when we read this, to think how dangerous a position we can be in if we don't keep working toward maturity. So scheming. It describes a method, a strategy, or a scheme. And in the New Testament, it's always negative. It's always used negatively. A method, a strategy. And so, you know, false teachers, they're not haphazard. They, they don't just like, you know, kind of wing it. They have a method. They have a strategy. And the whole point of that is for us to take this seriously. Because how many people think that, well, you know, I, I have Jesus, I don't, need, I don't need to read my Bible, I don't need to know doctrine. And, and We need to take it seriously, because they have a strategy. They are good at what they do. Or I should say skillful. What about the word deceitful? That describes roaming, wandering, going astray, or here, leading astray. Okay, they seek to lead people astray. That's their their intent. In the New Testament, this word is used for deceit, delusion, error. Their scheming seeks to deceive. False teachers use every ploy they can. They use their craftiness. They use their best arguments, their most powerful strategies. They do whatever it takes to deceive naive Christians so that they can lead them into error. We need to understand how powerful they are. Because if we don't keep growing individually and as a church, we're no match for them. So many Christians, they, they, people in the name of Christ, they, they go around you know, thinking that they can kick Satan around and order him around and things like that. He's way more powerful than you realize. If you ever saw him, you would run scared, terrified. We need to think that way about the false teachers. They are powerful. They are skillful at what they do. We shouldn't toy with them. We should, we should grow spiritually, grow in the Word, so that we can stand against them. So that when they say, oh, well, let me tell you this... And we can say, be gone. Go away. Stop talking. I don't want to hear any more of that. John Stott describes immature believers as easy prey to each new theological fad. They're easy prey. The book of Hebrews explains that believers who are mature are called that says there, the writer, who because of practice, and this is spiritual mature Christians, because of practice they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Hebrews 5.14. You see, they have studied the Word and they've practiced and lived out the Word throughout their lives day by day working on it so that now their, their mind, their senses, their abilities are trained so that they can discern. They can when, when a false teacher comes along and they say, Oh, I've heard this new idea that so and so is is promoting. And you immediately like, mm, that's not what the Bible says. You're trained to discern that. Or you're like, 
Really? Let's go look at the Word of God. And you look there, and you say, "Mm mm-mm, that's not what it says. See, you're trained to be able to spot those things and to know how to go to God's Word and be like a Berean and see, is this really true? In some cases, maybe there's something you hear uh, here at church, or maybe you're listening to a sermon by you know a, a godly, reputable you know pastor, and and you're like, hmm, I hadn't heard that before. And you go check it out, and you make, well, okay, he's right, because that's what God's word says. And you see, they have their their minds trained. But we must understand that those who promote false doctrines do not have pure motives. Don't ever say they mean well. They don't. Paul's making it clear here. They don't have pure motives. They're seeking to deceive, to confuse you. Watch out for every wind of doctrine. And remember, it can come from every different direction. Don't think that Satan is only going to attack from the left. He doesn't only attack using liberalism. A lot of times we we leave ourselves open to be attacked from other areas. We're going to talk about that a little bit here in a minute in the next as we get into this next verse. You'll see what I mean. So, when the body of Christ grows, that will, as we already said, prevent spiritual instability. But number two, it will also promote ongoing spiritual growth. Verse 15. It will promote ongoing spiritual growth. Look with me at verse 15. But, a contrast, right? But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Stark contrast to verse 14. But, false teachers methodically scheme and use trickery, hoping to deceive people to accept their false doctrine. But instead, believers are to be diligent to fortify themselves against those attacks. And that happens by being truthful and by continual growth. Let's talk about truthful for a minute. The verb for speaking the truth literally means truthing or truthing, okay? Now, in Greek, that sounds fine, but in English, that doesn't sound very good, does it? And you're like, okay, that really doesn't work for me. And that's because we don't have that word, that form of it, okay? So that doesn't work. What it, how can we put this into English? Well, what he's, deci- what he's describing here is a lifestyle that's characterized by truthfulness. And so it's broader than just speaking. It includes speaking, but it's broader than that. It's a lifestyle characterized by truthfulness. And so we could translate it being truthful because the verb applies to both our speech and our conduct, and that will come out here in just a moment, you'll see. The the Net Bible has it this way, and this is good, practicing the truth, which that's going to involve how you act, your attitude, but also your speech, okay? Practicing the truth. The character of our speech and, and our conduct are both important. So Paul is saying that a, a lifestyle that's characterized by truthfulness is a stark contrast to the teaching 
and the conduct of false teachers. Whenever you read about false teachers in the Bible, especially thinking in the New Testament, you usually find there both. They're, they're, what they're teaching, the, the false doctrine, that's not the truth, as well as ungodly character. Because both speech and character are important. Jesus did this, didn't He? So He taught against the, the, the false teachers of His day. The religious leaders were teaching wrong things about God, about Messiah, and about salvation. And But you remember what He said there in Matthew 7.20, You will know them by their doctrine. Does that sound right? Well, that's not untrue. That's not what He said there. You will know them by their fruits the fruit of their doctrine, the way they live. So this, we have to understand this, this is important. And so truthfulness in teaching must be accompanied by truthfulness in behavior. That's the point here. Truthfulness in teaching must be accompanied by truthfulness in behavior. And of course, when, when I'm talking about truth, I'm talking about biblical truth. You know, I know you think about like, we practice biblical counseling here, and there's all kinds of other kinds of counseling out there, right? And they say, well, there's, there's truth. We're talking about biblical truth here, right? So, practicing the truth, how? In love. We cannot miss this. In love... This phrase demands that we live and speak truthfully, or as we do it, we do it in love. And remember, biblical love is seeking the highest good of the one who is loved. Biblical love is not about me, you know, seeking my good and you meeting my needs. Biblical love is, if I have biblical love in my heart, then I'm going to seek your highest good. John Stott explained that, you know, some people, yes, they are determined to defend God's revealed truth. Good. And then he says, but sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch. Their muscles ripple. And the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so, and this is so shocking to read, they're prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of Revelation, the truth of the gospel. Truth without love is just as bad as truth, or love without truth. Truth without love is just as bad as love without truth. We never ever say, well, as long as we have love, we don't, you know, truth is not as important. Never say, as long as we have truth, love is not as important. You can't, those both go together. They go together in the character of God and character of Christ. We cannot separate them. And so that, that idea that Stott was referring to, where some people say, yeah, we, you know, I'm going to, I'm standing for the truth, and, I'm a, and it's okay if I'm hateful about it. Or I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to maintain, you know, brotherly love, and I'll get rid of doctrine if I have to. 
Both are horribly wrong. Both are sinful. Scripture demands that we always live and speak truthfully and lovingly. These are required if we're going to grow up, if we're going to grow up spiritually. Look again at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love or practicing the truth, practicing truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him. Who? Him who is the head, even Christ. We've been saying that our growth is necessary if we're going to be able to take a stand against error. The proper soil for growth is truth and love. Not one or the other alone. Truth and love. That's why we preach and teach the Word. We have to teach you what is true from God's Word. We also have to teach you truthful living. Living true to God's character, Christ's character. So that biblical love just oozes out of every pore of your spiritual soul when you're interacting with other people. You're standing for the truth, but you're living it in a loving way. And that's why we take so much time, you know, why do we have 45, 50-minute sermons? Why do we have, you know, 45, 50-minute, hour-long Sunday school? Because we have to teach this. You, we have to have it to grow. So Christ uses our service through spiritual gifts to grow His church. Now, to what end are we to grow? What are we shooting for? He says here, we are to grow up in all aspects into or unto Him, talking about Christ. Or it probably helps a little better to understand it as towards Him. We're growing towards Christ. Okay? Or uh, we talked last time, remember, about that full stature of Christ. Remember I had the the little stick person outline, you know, and, and so you have... But then there, as the church is growing, it's filling up that stature, if you will, to, because the church is growing toward being like Christ as, as fully as we can corporately be. And that's what we're working. We're, we're working toward, that's our goal, is the full stature of Christ. So that we're not just coming along with, you know, well, we've got Christ's, you know, his mouth, you know, that part, okay, we, we've got that with the truth, speaking the truth, but we don't have the hands and the feet, and all, you know, that goes with love. And we, no, we, we, we're working on having all of it, working toward the whole, the full stature of Christ. And it's not just in one area or the other. We, we have to always, that's why we, we, we try to go through and preach the whole Word of God. And we don't just pick and choose passages that, you know, the pastor, you know, has a, you know, axe to grind on. You know, it's like we're going to go through all of it. We're going to cover every verse in that book. You know, and, you know, it makes it hard sometimes because we get to it and I don't really want to preach on that. Well, we've got to, you know. And, and so we need that because he's expecting our growth to be in all aspects, as he says here. Every area of spiritual life is important. And that's why you'll hear us talking about all these different things. Because as we go through the Word of God, we're going to cover it all. Every aspect of spiritual life needs to match up to the fullness of Christ. And so, how do we do that? Grow in using our gifts. 
grow in knowing well the truth of Scripture, developing character traits that imitate Christ. We must be growing in doing these at the same time so that we're growing in knowledge and we're growing in love. And as we do that, we grow more in knowledge and we grow more in love. We need to continue, continually improve at standing for biblical truth while maintaining the highest level of godly love. Do you get that? We have continually improve at standing for God's truth. We have to do that. And we also have to do it while maintaining and developing the highest level of godly love. Well, he says one more thing about this one that we're aiming toward. Christ is the head. He's the head of the church. First, that means He has absolute authority. As head, Jesus is directing the growth of the body. And and the first way that He's doing that, He's told us already in this passage, is is by giving us spiritual gifts. That's how He's directing the growth. So as he, He looks at our church and He says, okay, this is what they need right now, then He makes sure that we have people with those gifts. You see, that's how He's directing our growth. There's a weak area. He's going to give us people with those gifts. He will, he will strengthen those gifts. As head, He's directing our growth. But secondly, as head, it means He's preeminent. He is our supreme example. Again, the full stature of Christ. That He is the one we're, we're shooting for. It's His image we're, we're shooting for. His character that we're shooting for. And, and so, He's our supreme example. It's His full stature that we work to be like. And you wonder why, you know, why they're always talking about Jesus, they're always talking about Jesus, you know, or Christ or you know, the Lord. Why? He's our goal. His character is the character for our or the goal for our character. And so he deserves all of our glory, and so we worship him. And He deserves to have a people who are created in His image and are being transformed into His image. We shoot to be like Him. Well, as we think about applying this, and also let's think about the Lord's Supper. Consider Jesus our supreme example. And there's a lot of examples you, we can go to. But I want to go to the big one. The ultimate one. The supreme example. Because push comes, when push comes to shove, when you're dying, that's who you really are. All the games are over for us. Not Jesus didn't have any games. But for us to think, when a person's dying, that's who they really are. And when Jesus was dying we saw that He was exactly the same as He was when He was living. And so we can go to all these different examples. But when He was dying, He showed love for His enemies in things like, Father, forgive them. I don't know that I could have said that. After they did what they did to Him, and the shame they heaped on him, 
I would hope I would, but I don't know that I would. I could have done that. Jesus did. Father, forgive them. He showed compassion for them, even though they were hateful and murderous. And then here, as soon as He died, they were now guilty of murder. Both the the people who physically put Him to death and also the ones who were calling for His death. They were guilty of His murder. And of some of those same people, He had in mind that I'm dying for them. Because as we read Acts, we find that some of those chief, those priests that were there calling for his murder, they repented. They trusted in Christ. And we know John was there and Mary, and we know that they trusted in him. They weren't calling for his death, but John wasn't much support for him. But you think about those murderers and how hateful they were. And Jesus on that cross is like, Father, I see what they're doing. I hear what they're saying. I feel what they're inflicting on me. But for the joy set here in the future, I know that some of these folks in this crowd who are killing me and being so hateful to me, those are ones you've given me. And I'm going to redeem them. This death is for them and for so many like them, you and me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus died for His enemies. I mean, Paul brings that out in Romans, right? While we were enemies, He died for us. And so, He went so far as to die for the sins of of enemies who were right there murdering Him. But He sought their highest good. That's love, biblical love, agape. He sought their highest good. What was their highest good in that moment? Salvation. And the only way that was to happen is for Him to die in their place. And He did. You see, that's how He could say, Father, forgive them. Because He had their highest good in mind. Jesus taught and lived truthfully. He taught and lived lovingly. Let's meditate on that, on Jesus, His example for us.